0: Amen and amen. How we doing, church? Doing good? You look good. You sound great. Let me ask you this. Do you trust your heavenly father? That's what we are talking about. The way that we know that he is trustworthy is because the tomb is empty, and we are seven weeks away from celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And I can tell by your trepid applause, you're not ready. That's why we do this season of preparation. If you got your Bibles, dive into Genesis chapter 22 is where we are going to start And what we're gonna be doing over these next seven weeks is we're tracking our way through seven different mountains. Today we're gonna start on Mount Moriah, and we're gonna end up seven weeks from now on Mount Calvary, turns out it's the same exact mountain. And I don't know about you, but God tends to display his glory up on the mountaintop kind of events, and his grace and his mercy down in the valleys. And every single one of us is either on top of a mountain, down in a valley, or somewhere in between, amen? And as it's already been pointed out to you about 100 times, um, it's in line with, with my first book, If the Tomb is Empty, and, uh, and I know it's been pointed out, but there's a family discount for you if you're here in person at any of our campuses. And one of the things I just wanna be clear about is if you, buy any, if you buy a book at any of our campuses, all of the proceeds of that book stays at the church because I did not write this to make money, I wrote this to make disciples, all right? So we wanna get it into as many hands as we possibly can. Now, If you look at the cover of the book, there are three names there. The first is mine, and I promise you, if my English teacher growing up would see this, she would say, well, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible, okay? Because, (laughs) and then the second name there is Charles Martin. Charles is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written a whole bunch of books. He's also a deacon at our church and a dear, dear friend of mine, and so he helped me take this message and get it into a book. And then the third name, if you have a book, you'll see there, the foreword was, was written by, we have a picture of the guy that wrote the foreword, if you want to take a look at that guy. That guy wrote the foreword. Look how he, he was so cute when he was young, wasn't he? So. <laughs> and a part of the reason I want you, I want you to see that picture <coughs> is because when Timmy was playing for the Denver Broncos, he put John 316 on his eye black, and you've probably heard this story before, because it's legendary around here, because you people are fanatics, and He's playing for the Denver Broncos. It's a playoff game. He puts John three sixteen on his eye black, and John three sixteen is the point of what we're going to be studying today. That's why I pointed out. And after the game, after they won, I think they beat the Steelers, which God hates the Steelers. I don't know why you won. The Bible literally says, "Thou shalt not steal." I don't know how you like that team. So, anyway. <laughs> um. So after the game, a reporter comes up to Tebow and is like, do you know what just happened? And he's like, of course I know what just happened. I won the game and we're getting to play next weekend. And he said, they said, well, I don't know if you know this, but during the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16 yards. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The ratings for the game was 31.6. The time of possession for your team was 31 minutes and six seconds. And during the game, 90 million people have already Googled John 3.16, and it was the number one thing trending on Facebook and Twitter, to which some people say, that's just a big coincidence. And Tebow says, I say that's just one big God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, <clears throat> so the people that were, twit, uh, that, were, that were Googling what does John 3.16 mean, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in to understand it. And you can't really understand the most famous Christian verse ever, which says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. To really understand what that verse is all about, you got to go all the way back to Mount Moriah, Genesis chapter 22, and the account of Abraham and his son Isaac. So the Bible says this in Genesis chapter 22, verse one. It says, after these things. Well, I gotta tell you what these things are because these things cover about 10 chapters of the Bible. (laughs) These things are that there was a man named Abram. His name's gonna be changed to Abraham. And he's married to a lady named Sarai and it's gonna change her name to to Sarah. So we'll just call him Abraham and and Sarah. And so they're they're just kind of minding their own business and because God is good and God is gracious, he just chooses Abraham and he chooses him to make a covenant with him. And he makes this everlasting covenant with Abraham. And he gives him this promise. He says, from you, you are gonna be, you are gonna be the father of many nations. That's what Abraham actually means. Abram means dad, and Abraham means the father of many nations. There's only one problem with this. At this point in their life, he's 80 years old. Sarah's a little bit younger than him, but she's not young. And they have zero kids at this point. And God says, don't worry about it, I promise you, I'm gonna give you a son, and through this son, the entire world is going to be blessed through this son of yours. And not only am I gonna give you a son and make you a people, I'm gonna give you a place to live, a promised land, and so I need you to move from where you are, he lived in this place called the Ur of the Chaldees, and I need you to go to where I'm going to show you. And so, Abraham comes home from his meeting with God, and just think about this for a second, wives, and he comes up to his wife, and he says, honey, uh, God was talking to me today. Okay, what did he say? He said that we're moving. Now, wives, what's the first question you're gonna ask? Where are we moving? And he said, I don't know, God will show us when we get there. Now, Abraham is really the father of faith. The New Testament is gonna say, and the Old Testament is going to say, (coughs) that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. But what about the faith of Sarah? Sarah moved with her husband, packed up all their stuff, moved with her husband to a place that she didn't even know where it was going to be. Husbands, I can't get the people that live in my house that share my last name to get in my truck if we don't clearly articulate exactly where we're going and how long we're gonna be there. You understand? And so by faith, Abraham and Sarah pack it all up and they are on the go. Now there's just one problem with this promise from God. For over 20 years, there's a promise no pregnancy. Over twenty years, there's a promise, no child. Anybody ever noticed that God's timing and our timing ain't exactly the same? Can I get a witness right? And so the problem is, is they begin to kind of give up on God and they start doing a couple shady things. Three that I'll point out. One is two different times as they're wandering around trying to figure out where they're going to live. Um, they go into another land, and, one of, and the king has his eye on Sarah. So even though she's up in age, she's still got it going on. And so this king has his eye on Sarah, and in order for Abraham to save his own skin, check this out, he lies to the king, says, she's not my wife, she's my sister, you can have her, twice. Let me just put this in 21st century language. He pimps out his wife two times to save his own skin, and somehow they stay married, can you imagine the conversations at home? Hey, Sarah, can you get me some sweet tea? You can get your own sweet tea. You're gonna tell the king. Are oh, you understand, okay. So that's what's happening. Then it gets even worse. <clears throat> then what happens is Sarah, because she doesn't have a child, and they know they've got this promise from God. Here's the problem. They don't trust God to come through on their promises, so they say, we're gonna take matters into our own hands. And Sarah says, why don't you just sleep with my servant, her name's Hagar, and we'll just create our own little promised child. And that causes all kinds of problems. And yet, and yet, I'm just gonna tell you, if Abraham worked on my staff, any one of these three things, I would fire him. Do you understand? You did what with your what? You're out of here. You don't get to work here anymore. But how many of you know, I hope you know this, I hope you know this, that our past does not define us, that our past does not disqualify us? You see, the enemy wants you to be defined by your scars, but Jesus says, no, 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 you'll be defined by mine. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, even our unfaithfulness never nullifies the faithfulness of God. God still comes through. You see, in fact, if you look through the scriptures, if you look at the people that God uses to do glorious things, they have some pretty shady paths. And the reason I bring this up is Listen, man, God could use you no matter what your past is, no matter what your past is. He could use you to do immeasurably more than you've ever thought, dreamed, or imagined. Don't believe me? Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a thief, Joseph was a convict, Moses was a murderer, Samson was a bully, Gideon was a coward, David was an adulterer, Solomon was a womanizer, Elisha had some pretty serious anger issues, Jonah was a racist, Jeremiah was depressed, Mary was a pregnant teenager, Peter was a hypocrite, James and John were power hungry, Matthew was bad with money, Thomas was a doubter, Paul was a terrorist, and Tebow was a gator. God can use anybody. And so, <laughs> I threw one in there for you. Okay, so, <laughs> 24 years after mistake, after mistake, after mistake, God sends an angel and an angel shows up to Abraham. And, and and his wife, Sarah, is listening in and the angel says, all right, it's finally time. A year from right now, a year from right now, book the bouncy house, make a reservation at Chuck E. Cheese, you are gonna have a baby boy. And Sarah (laughs) she doesn't even believe it. So they named the kid Laughter, that's what Isaac means. So that's what has happened, those are these things that have been going on, and after these things. And then also, there's about, I don't know, maybe 16 to 18 years after he's born that we don't get any income. Like things just seem to be going right along, right? And I'm sure Abraham and Sarah are thinking, you know what, we've been through some serious trials, but now everything's gonna be up and to the right. After these things, God tested Abraham. I hate tests. Don't you hate tests? I, nobody ever told me this explicitly, <clears throat> but I thought when I got saved from that moment on, everything was gonna be up and to the right in my life. I just thought that's how it was gonna go. Maybe it was because every like, FCA event or Campus Crusade for Christ event I went to or every church I ever went to, the testimonies that they showed were, my life was wrecked, I met Jesus, and look at me now. Well, I hope you know that we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow him because he is better than life. And that we serve a God that would love us enough to test us. He would love us enough to discipline us. He would love us enough that he would put us in a desperate situation knowing the best thing for us is that we would be desperate for him. In fact, the way Hebrews says it is this. Hebrews 12 says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what he is saying that discipline means that you're a legitimate son of God. And so if that's the case, I'm gonna tell you what. My dad and his discipline was super legit, okay? He disciplined me, I mean, like crazy. And here's the thing, man. He did not mind me experiencing some temporary pain then to avoid a whole bunch of pain now. And I would get home, well, he would get home. He traveled a bunch and worked a bunch, and I would get in trouble a lot. We could just do a whole series on Joby's troubles growing up, okay? The list would be long. And so my mom would say, you wait till your daddy gets home and he would get home and he would walk into my room and sit down and say, boy, is there something I needed to know about? Which is a really dangerous open-ended question. Because in my mind, I thought, well, there's like six things you probably need to know about, but I'm not sure which ones you do know about. So why don't you go first and we'll go case by case basis, okay? (laughs) And there was no... There was no list to go think about it in my house. There was no timeout. The only timeout was when my dad, in between whippings, would take some time out and like smoke a cigarette, and then come back in to finish the drill. All right. And he had this move, man. He could go straight to his belt, one hand, and go like Indiana Jones. But if I hear a car backfire, I still kind of whoof sometimes. All right. And listen, I know I'm gonna get the email. It's like we don't spank Timmy. We are fully aware. We are. We are. You didn't even have to say it. Okay. So. Part of the problem, all right, but <clears throat> I don't have time. <laughs> but what he's saying is, is that any good parent loves their kid enough to discipline them, help them experience a little bit of pain now so as to avoid a whole lot later. When I was in the when I was a kid in I don't know what grade, probably first, second, third grade, somewhere in there, I'm riding my bicycle, Dillon, South Carolina, riding right in the road right out in front of my house with my best friend, Joey Peel. Remember that name, it'll matter at the end of the service. Joey Peel, he's riding around with me. Mama comes out on the front porch, slings the door open, and she wasn't really a yeller, she wasn't. She was pretty calm most of the time. She sees me riding in the street and she screams out, Joseph Perry Martin III, you better get in the house, get out the road. And I was like, whoa, mama, you don't love me, why are you yelling at me? If you love me, you wouldn't yell at me. And as quick as lightning, she says, if I didn't love you, I would let you ride your bike in the road. Then immediately, right behind me, I hear. (laughs) And I look, and it's my best friend, Joey Peel trying not to cry. You ever seen a little boy trying not to cry, and he's trying to hold it in? (laughs) And he gets all the quivers, you know? And then he just breaks out. I'm like, dude, what is wrong with you? Why are you crying? And he goes, my mama lets me ride in the road. Okay, so. Yeah, man, sometimes you're going through the trial and you're like, Lord, help me. And he reaches down and plucks you up from the muck and the mire and puts your foot on the safe spot. Sometimes. More often in my life when I'm like, Lord, help me. He says, I've got you, my son. Takes me by the hand and drags me through the mud under the water until I'm desperate for him like a drowning man is desperate for air. Because that's what you need. That's what I need. And so Abraham is tested by God, J.I. Packer says it this way, and still he seeks the fellowship of his people and he sends them both sorrows and joy in order to detach their love from other things and attach it to himself. And so God's gonna test Abraham and he says to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am. Now, have you ever noticed in the Bible, the Bible just comes right out and says, just God just communicates with people. He just talks to folks. He never says exactly how it goes down, which I'm glad because we get all hung up on the how it happened instead of who's talking. But I've had people at our church say, does God ever speak to you? Oh yeah, for sure. Out loud? Mm-hmm. You hear the audible voice of God? I do, you can too. If you will just open the word of God and read it out loud, I've got good news for you. This is God speaking to you which is why we do Lent. The reason that we're fasting and praying on Wednesdays in preparation for Resurrection Sunday is because what if God is still speaking to his children just like he was back then, but our world has gotten so loud that it drowns out the very voice of God, and a major part of what Lent season is is just to turn down the noise in our ears so that we can turn up our hearts to hear the voice of God. And so, God says to Abraham, Abraham says, Here I am, verse two, he says, take your son, your only son, underline that, it matters. Isaac, whom you love, underline that, it matters. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. You can underline offer as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, during this time in ancient history, it would not have been out of order in every other major world religion for child sacrifice to be a thing. And so just to be clear, God is going to shut that down once and for all. He says, not in the kingdom of heaven. Every life matters, especially the life of a child. There are no unwanted children. God wants every single one of them. But that is not the primary thing that's going on here. But he's gonna tell him, take your son, your only son. Now, which, by the way, if you say, "Well, I thought you said he had another son. He did, but he's never called the son of his love, the son of his promise. And, and Isaac is called his only son. Why? If you go to Romans chapter nine, you'll find out that Ishmael, is a picture of works-based righteousness. When you don't trust God and you say, I'm gonna make this happen by my own works. But Isaac is this son that came as a promise, that came as a miracle, that is a son of faith. And so he says, take your only son whom you love to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, let me just ask you this. You see, here's the problem. If you've been around Bible study a minute, you already know how it ends. But Abraham does not know how this is gonna end. Could you? Could you? Can you trust God with what he's put in your hands? I know it makes it weird if you think about your own kid like this. But think about, can you trust God with the things that he has put in your hands? Because one of the things that the enemy loves to do is take a good gift of God and then begin to twist it and we take a good thing and we begin to treat it like a God thing and that's a really bad thing. I mean, it could be money, it could be your job, it could be a dream, it could be a relationship. And what begins to happen is that God is not the the one that is before all things. God is not the one thing driving everything. But we are worshiping the, the created instead of the creator. We are worshiping the gift instead of the giver of the gift. You see, you can't pick up your cross and follow Jesus if you won't lay down your Isaac. You see, When we begin to hold on to these things, then they grab hold of us. And so Abraham, look what he does. Abraham rose early in the morning. Now that's faithfulness. That's obedience. I don't know about you, but whenever God asks me to do a hard thing, I always need to pray about it for a while. You know what I'm saying? And listen, I'm pro-prayer, but not if it is an excuse or or a, a time to delay the obedience from what God has called me to do. But Abraham, he rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and he arose and he went to the place of which God had told him and on the third day, that matters too. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, all right, when you, when you think about this, I, when I just said, could you sacrifice your son? Listen, all of us are like, I don't think I did that. Okay, I get it, I get it. In this next verse, we find out how Abraham was able to be willing to walk through this. Here's what it says. And, and it's not as nuanced in English. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the boy, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. In the Hebrew, what it's saying is, if you look at like the verb tenses, what it's saying is, you, you guys stay here with the donkey, the boy and I will go up on the mountain and worship, and we will return, the boy and I will return. You see, Abraham is in what feels like an impossible situation. How's this gonna happen? Abraham, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna do exactly what God tells me to do. He told me to take my son to this mountain and sacrifice him there. And then I'm telling you, we will be back. You're like, whoa, 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 how, Abraham? How can you believe that? A little Bible study suggestion. I've said this a million times. Always use the Bible as commentary to itself. Before you read what some very smart person with their PhD thinks about this, see what the Bible says about itself. And, and the faith of Abraham is talked about all throughout the New Testament, but three places in particular talk about this moment in Abraham's life. In Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, Romans 4, 16 to 25, we find out what, what, what Abraham was thinking In Hebrews and Romans we find out that Abraham believed in the promise of God. That Abraham believed that one day a serpent crusher was coming, that one day there would be a Messiah that would show up on the scene and that God is the God of resurrection and that God is the God of the living. So even if Abraham follows through with this that God would have the ability to resurrect his son and here's why his faith was that strong. Because he knew God is who he says he is and God always keeps his promise. And the promise, the covenant God made with Abraham is this, I am going to bless the entire world by making a whole bunch of babies, I'm actually gonna create a nation through your son Isaac. And so he's looking at this promise, his son, and then he's looking at God's call to sacrifice his son. And he's saying, the reason that I can go through with it is because God never breaks his promise. And somehow this boy has to live in order for God to keep his promise. So he looks at the people standing by the donkey and says, we going up there, we're going to do what God says, and we're going to go back. How, Abraham? I have no idea how. I'm not into the how. Here's what I'm about to tell you. This is an impossible situation, but with God, all things are possible. So that's why he's going up. And then in Galatians 3.8, we find out, I don't even know how this happens, somehow the gospel was preached to Abraham all the way back here. That we, what we believe by name, Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, somehow Abraham knew by faith that God was going to send a substitutionary atonement in our place. And so, verse six, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And then Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And his son said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, I don't, I'm not sure why this was, but, but up until, I don't know, not very long ago, I always thought, when I heard about this account of Abraham and Isaac, I thought Isaac was like fresh out of pull-ups, you know what I mean? Like, like he's taking his kid, his kid doesn't know what's happening, but most uh, theologians and commentators will say that, that Isaac is at least a teenager, at least a teenager, at least 16, 17 years old, because he's gonna cut wood, he's gonna carry this wood up this hill, he's gonna carry fire, and if you see him, you know he's a teenager because he asks about a million questions. He's looking around, he's like, all right, Dad, um, so I see, uh, so we got we're missing something. Where is the lamb? And then Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And again, even though Abraham feels like he is in an impossible situation, he knows that all things are possible with God. And so by obedience, they begin to make their trek up Mount Moriah. Verse nine, and when they came to the place of God that God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, there's no way Abraham does this by force. Why? Because if Isaac is 16, Abraham's 116. You ever wrestle a 116-year-old guy? I don't even know one, but I'm pretty sure you could whip him. You understand? Or if you're 16, you could at least outrun him. Look, I... I I have a 16 year old son, lives at my house. He thinks he's tough, he is tough. He thinks he can get me, he can't get me. He, now, what I will tell you this, is he's going this way, he's a football player, and jiu jujitsu fighter, all that, and I'm, I'm, I'm beyond my peak years, you understand what I'm saying, all right? I don't know why you laugh, you're gonna hurt my feeling, all right, anyway, we're, we're but I'm gonna tell you what, man, I got a couple more in me, but before, in just a couple years, one last time, I'm gonna put him on the mat and he's gonna feel it well into his 30s. That's what I'm gonna do, okay? Because y'all got, you know about that dad power, right? Remember I grabbed on my daddy one time when I was in high school and all that sausage turned into like steel and, 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 and he, he cheated too. he like break your fingers and poke you in the eye. He didn't care, right? All right, that's what I'm gonna do, one more time. And then by the time he knows he can get me, hopefully he'll be mature enough to not want to. All right, but, but I'm only 48. If I was 116, so here's what this means that Abraham is not forcing Isaac to do this. Here is this son, the son of Abraham's love, who has taken this wood on his back up this hill and he is going to lay down on this altar and ultimately what this son of this father that loves him is going to say is not my will but your will be done. And he lays himself down on this altar. Verse 10, and then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And again, you say, how could he do this? The reason he could do this is because he knows God can be trusted and God always keeps his promises. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Just before we planted this church, I was having uh, lunch or something with this seasoned pastor, that pastor's here in our city on the other side of town, okay? He's been a pastor for decades and decades and decades. And he looked at me and he said, he said, remember this, don't do what God told you to do. And I thought, hold on. I thought that's exactly what you're supposed to do, okay? I thought you're supposed to do exactly what God told you to do. He said, no, 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 no. Don't do what God told you to do. Do what God is telling you to do. And he was thinking, he was referencing Genesis 22. He said, God told you to be a youth pastor, and that's what you should have done. But if you only did what God told you to do, then you wouldn't be able to step into what he is telling you to do now. And what he is telling you to do now is plant a church. And oftentimes what happens with Christians is is we take a big step of faith when God told us to do something, and we do that thing, but then we get really, really comfortable in what he told us to do yesterday, and we're scared to take a step of faith in what he is telling you to do right now. And so, thank God, Abraham still has his ears open to hear what God is telling him. And so he raises the knife and goes, whoa, 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 don't do it. There's a ram caught with his horns in the thicket. This is a miracle. It's a miracle. I mean, when did it get caught? Did they, did they walk by it on the way up? they like, well, that's interesting. I wonder how that'll play into the story. Like, when, when did he, like, while they're building the altar, did he get caught? And this is a miracle, My deer hunters know this to be true. Any deer hunters in the house? If you're a deer hunter, come on, testify, raise it high. Good, good, good. Anybody have their own land that you deer hunt on? If that's the case, raise your hand high. Come on. All right, I see that hand. We might need to prayer walk it later, okay? So, (laughs) have you ever seen this? Have you ever been walking to your stand and be like, golly, there's a 10-pointer with his head in the thorns? Oh, man, this is a miracle of God. And so, there is a ram, an adult male lamb with thorns all around his head. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering. The key words of the text, instead of his son. There was a substitute. It is a picture of the gospel. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. That's how you say it in Hebrew. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. Talking about the mountain he's standing on. Moriah is what he calls it, which means foreseen by God. And an angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham had no idea what hung in the balance for this step of faith and obedience that he took. There's no way Abraham could have known that this son of his, Isaac, was gonna have two sons and that younger son was gonna have 12 sons, and those 12 sons were gonna become the tribes of Israel, and then they were gonna end up in Egypt for 400 years while God was building a nation, and then one day, Moses was gonna show up and look at the Pharaoh and says, I'm here on behalf of God, and he says, let my people go. And then they were going to march on dry ground across the Red Sea, and then they were gonna be given the, the law on Mount Sinai, and then they were gonna make their way through the leadership of Joshua into the promised land, and then the craziest thing is they found themselves back on this exact mountain. How in the world do you do that? I don't know, I don't think Abe left the, you know, dropped a pen on Google Maps for them for, Multiple generations later, but they come back to this exact mountain and they build the temple. And year after year after year, lambs were slain for the covering of sin right here on this mountain. And maybe and Abraham could not have foreseen that out of this people would come a Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that. John the Baptist would look at him one day and say, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the entire world. Not just another Lamb of God here to cover over the sin of the Jewish people for one year, but the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the entire world. You see, the point, the, the only way to understand fully Genesis 22 is you gotta know John 3, 16. You see, the whole Bible is about one thing, and I hate to break it to you, and it ain't you. It's not, okay? Don't worry, Snowflake, you'll be all right. But listen, God's for you, he's for you. It's just not all about you. I mean, anybody that dies for you is for you. And he demonstrated his love for you in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not all about you, it's all about Jesus. And so everything that was happening in Genesis 22 is actually pointing to this substitutionary lamb of God that was gonna show up on the scene and be sacrificed instead of us. And the reason I say this is because if you go to John chapter three, <coughs> Jesus says that this is all about him. You see, in John chapter three, we studied this last year, in John chapter three, Jesus is having this conversation with a guy named Nicodemus who is a religious Pharisee. He's an expert in the law, he's an expert in the Bible. And he recognizes that Jesus must be from God because he's done some miracles, and so he comes, he meets him at night, for whatever reason. He comes at night and he goes, all right, teacher, you must be from God because nobody could do these miracles if you weren't from God. And then Jesus knows that he's a Pharisee. Jesus knows that he is an expert in the scriptures. And so he just jumps to the top shelf, man. He just gets right to the point. And he says, he goes, Nicodemus, you're right. But unless one is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And when he says born again, here's what he's saying. He's like, Nicodemus, I I know you're a religious man, but you don't need to be a better version of you. You need a new you. You need a brand new life. You need to die to yourself and be born again in me. And unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And it just goes right over his head. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. What do you mean born again? Can a man enter into his mother a second time? And then Jesus is like, what in the name of me are you talking about? No, man, stop. What, what? So he's missing it. So then Jesus does what a great rabbi would do. Jesus knows that Nicodemus has the entire Old Testament memorized. You see, because if Nicodemus is a Pharisee, that means that when he first went to school, what the the good little Jewish boys and girls would do is they would would go to Hebrew school and they would be taught the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And on the first day of school, like kindergarten age, they would come in and they would get a tablet, all right? And if you're 1825, it's not electronic. It was like chalk, all right? And this tablet would probably have the Shema written on it from Deuteronomy 6. Shema, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But on this tablet, it would be covered with honey. And most of these little kids from Jerusalem and the Galilee, they they wouldn't have enough money to have ever tasted honey, but they had heard of honey before. And this thing is covered in honey. And the rabbi would hand these honey-soaked tablets out to all the kids and say, have at it, kids. And think about this. These kids start licking the honey off of the tablet. And just imagine the mess. It gets all over them. They're licking their hands. They're licking their neighbor. And they're thinking, this is the great, I love school so much. (laughs) And then at some point... At some point, the rabbi would stop the chaos, and he'd go, "Well, kids, 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 just like your tongue craves the sweetness of that honey, may your soul crave the sweet word of God, and they would start memorizing the Bible, and so if you were the best of the best of the best and made it to like graduate-level school, Pharisee school kind of thing, you would memorize the whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, that's not the order in Hebrew, but you would memorize the whole thing, the whole Old Testament. So I know many of you probably have several verses memorized, cool. They would memorize from Genesis all the way through every book of the Old Testament. And I know some people are like, well, I'm not good at memorizing. Well, then how come you knew every word to the Super Bowl halftime show, huh? We are a bunch of 40 years olds, we're watching it with a bunch of kids, and. When it came on, and we were all like, one, two, three, and two the four. My son's like, how do you know that? I'm like, well, let's let's memorize Bible verses. All right, so. Yeah. And so here's what Jesus is gonna do, okay? So he knows this about Nicodemus. He knows that Nick knows the word of God. And so he goes, all right, man, you remember Moses? Which was a bit of a shock, because Nicodemus is like, dude, I've been teaching like Sunday school for 50 years. Of course, I know Moses. He's like, all right, well, you remember the one in Numbers where all of the Israelites wake up one day and they are snake bitten and the venom is running through their veins and they're gonna die. And then God comes to Moses and says, fashion a bronze serpent or put together this snake and put it on a stick or a pole and lift it up. And whoever will look at that snake that is high and lifted up, they will be cured because it's not the snake bite that's the problem. It's what's running through their veins that's the problem. He's like, you remember that? You see, because what you need is not ointment from the outside. What you need is new blood on the inside. And then Jesus says, that whole snake thing, they're looking at the thing that they need to be cured of. That's me, bro. That I am going to be high and lifted up and God is gonna make him who is without sin to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God. At this point, I think all the all the. The the lights on Nicodemus's dashboard are starting to go off. He's like, Oh, wait a minute. And then, right on the heels of that, right on the heels of that, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, this was a rabbi trick. You see, in Greek, it's called proto logos, it means first words. And one of the things that Nicodemus would have known, he would have known the very first time the word love was used like that in all of the scriptures. And the first time the word love is used in the scriptures is to, is to describe the love of a father for his promised, only begotten son. And so as soon as Jesus says what is the most famous Christian verse, John three sixteen, then Nicodemus goes back to Genesis 22. He's thinking, this is like the same thing. There's a father who has a son who is promised, who's his only begotten son, his one and only son whom he loves. And he put wood on his back and he climbed up this hill. And when he got there, there was a ram caught in a thicket. And that ram was used as a substitute for his son. And Jesus is going, yeah man, right. And that is me. And so a few years later, Nicodemus is going to see this play out. Nicodemus is going to see the Lamb of God with a crown of thorns. He is going to see this Son of God crying out to his heavenly Father. He is going to see wood on his back climbing the exact same hill. Mount Moriah is Mount Calvary. He's gonna watch all of this happen and he is going to do exactly what Jesus says in John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the first time that ever made sense to me, that verse, and I'm gonna tell you, man, I grew up in the South, so I'd heard that verse. It's not the only one I knew. The first time it ever made sense to me, I told you this a hundred times, but when I was at camp, when I was a kid, I was in high school, and I was attending the Southern Baptist camp, and my counselors reenacted the crucifixion of Christ, and they were in no danger of winning any academy awards, okay? A bunch of southern kids with like togas and torches with southern accents, right? And yet, that we started with Pontius Pilate, with Jesus, and Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate asked the crowd, what should I do with this man named Jesus? By the way, the most important question you'll answer, answer in your life is that one. What are you gonna do with this man named Jesus? And the whole crowd yells, crucify him, kill him. And then they take him down, and they, they took him down this little dirt road, and we heard them flog Jesus, And then they took him on the other side of this lake, there was no lake in Jerusalem like that, but that's what we had in Minnesota, South Carolina, so you work with what you got. And they went on the other side of this lake and we heard the nails be driven into his hands and feet. And then they lifted up Jesus on the cross, And he said seven things, and the first thing he said is this. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the last thing he says is, it is finished. And I know this was the mid-'80s, and I was sitting in Bennettsville, South Carolina, but somehow in my mind I was transported to Jerusalem, Mount Calvary, 2,000 years ago. And Jesus pushed up on his nail-pierced feet, and he says, it is finished. And when he did, my heart was about to beat out of my chest. Now, my coach, Coach Bully, stands up in front of us and says this, for God so loved the world. And then he pointed at me and said, that means you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, and that means you. I must have looked real lost. He just pointed right at me. (laughs) That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And then he said, anybody that's ready to ask Jesus into his heart, that's the language we used back then. Anybody that's ready to ask Jesus into their heart, come down here and meet me. Now, this was a Baptist church. So we were under contract. I think it's in the bylaws or the Baptist Faith and Message or something. There's only one song you can close with, all right? You know what it is? That's right, we got some Baptists on the front row, all right. (laughs) Y'all are lost, y'all supposed to sit in the back. Okay, so, yeah man, just as I am. And unless being the copyright or something, you can only, you gotta sing it 14 times. You can't just sing one verse, 14 is the minimum number required and so there we are, man, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's what we are saying And my heart is about to beat out of my chest. And I knew in that moment somehow I couldn't explain it. I didn't know any theological terms. I didn't know Hebrew or Greek. I didn't even know the Bible was written in Hebrew or Greek, okay? I didn't know any of that stuff. All I knew somehow for the very first time is that when that man, Jesus, died on the cross, somehow that counted for me. Amen. And I'm sitting there. And the other thing about Baptists, Coach Lee said, you gotta come down here. Got to walk the aisle. Now, it's crazy, man. In the Baptist church, you can't get saved back there. You're going to hell back there. You only can get saved right here. It's the only place salvation takes place. Now, that's not how it works. I'm just telling you, that's how they did it, all right? And I'm getting all weepy, man, and I'm sitting on my stool, and I'm like, I ain't getting in front of these people. There ain't no way. And I wrap my feet around the little stool I was sitting on, and I was like, ain't no way. And then on verse 13 and a half, Coach Lee comes up. Here's what he said. He says, I think there's one more. All that one more language you use around here, Coach Lee said, I think there's one more. And I was the one more. And so, I don't know what happened. Because I was locked into that stool. I determined I am not getting up. And somehow, I levitated to the front. (laughs) And asked Jesus to come into my heart. I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in that moment, okay? Um, When Jesus says... Whoever believes, whoever believes, it makes me just a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous because there's a big old difference between believing in and believing that. And I'm afraid there's a whole bunch of people in churches, all especially the South, and you believe, but have you ever, have you ever did this thing Jesus is talking about? Amen. The Greek word is pistuo. It means to believe in. It means to trust in. It means to put your whole life into. Have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted Jesus for your salvation? Not your good works, not I'll do better, but have you ever put your faith in him? This week, <clears throat> I got an email. One of the things that we did in the book is at the end of the first chapter, um, we just share a gospel invitation with a prayer of salvation to pray, and anybody that does that, I put my email there, and I just asked them to email me so that we can get people connected in local churches. Well, I, I got an email on Tuesday, and the, the name of the person that wrote it caught my eye. His name is Jess Peel. Remember Joey Peel? It's his youngest brother. Youngest, there's five of them. There was Joey, Jan, Jenny, Jody, and Jess, all right? And so he sent me this, this email. Open it up and it says, I don't even know how to start this email sitting here in my house in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida with an 11 week old puppy. And he says, I've been spot following you for a while now, <clears throat> almost as if hiding in the woods, scared and embarrassed for you to see me. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Our families were really, really close. I, I called him this week, see how he's doing, and he kind of told me what's happening in his life. And I asked him, I said, bro, when's the last time we saw, I saw you? He said, I think I was eight years old, you were 18, and you were my camp counselor. Well, he graduated high school, he joined the Marines, went and did a few tours in Iraq. And when he got home, he just couldn't cope. Multiple addictions, several DUIs, spent some time in prison. All of his relationships were just shattered. Um, less than a year ago, he attempted to take his life. So when Jess was saying he was embarrassed, that's what he was talking about. He says, almost as if hiding in the woods, scared and embarrassed for you to see me. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. <clears throat> But by happen chance, or divine intervention, or let's just say a work of God, he put me in a situation after attending church for the third time in about 10 years this past Sunday, where I would walk by your book in A Books A Million in Destin, Florida, right down the road from where I live. And without a second thought, I bought it. Excited, scared, nervous, and a whole range of emotions poured out of my heart as I sat down to read the first chapter. What a rush of emotions flowed through and out of my body. You mentioning the pool and Dylan, your dogs, Hulk and Daisy, Coach Bull Lee, Camp Pine Hill, I knew them all by name, obviously. And then he says, I want to let you know, I said that prayer. I meant that prayer with my whole heart. That's right, man. <clears throat> and then he says, There has been so much that has happened around me over the past few months that the need for Christ in my heart and life might as well have been tattooed on my forehead so I could see it every time I look into the mirror. I wanna thank you for your God-given strength and beliefs. The way you speak and interpret the Bible is exactly what this Dylan, South Carolina boy needs to read. I'll finish your book, and then I'll pass it on to someone else when the Spirit presents itself for me to bless someone. This is gonna be a process for me to start breaking down some of the spiritual walls I've built around myself, but I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he has my back and will not let me drown. Amen. And the reason it says, the reason he closed with it will not let me drown, he will not let me drown, is because that's just how we closed the first chapter. I did not intend to close the service this way until Jeff sent this on Tuesday. But the illustration I give of belief, and I've done it 100 million times, it's like when I was a kid and Daddy would take us to the Dillon pool. We didn't do swimming lessons when I was growing up. It was very Darwinian. If you didn't make it, well, It's all right. That's why my generation is tougher than y'all, okay? Because the snowflakes all melted. But So he would just say, you go get on the diving board, and I'll get in the pool, and you jump off and swim to me. And so I would go climb on the diving board at Dillon Pool and make my way out to the edge, and then my dad would get into the deep end. And there I am standing on the edge of the diving board, and my dad in the deep end says, come on, buddy, jump. I got you. Just jump. I got you. And as I'm standing there, we just fear and trepidation because I don't know how to swim and I know if he doesn't get me I'm a goner and meanwhile there's a there's a line of not very encouraging young people behind me now here's the thing I recognize that he's my father I rode here in the truck with him I it's obviously him he's got the southern sloot the magnum pi mustache the shorty short ops remember those I recognize his voice, he's got a cigarette in his mouth in the deep end going, come on, boy, you ever anybody? <laughs> and I know because he came with that lady over there. There's my mom right over there. I recognize her, okay? She's covering baby oil, drinking a tab, smoking a Marlboro light. My people right there, I see them. <clears throat> Here's the problem, though. Like with what Jesus is talking about when he says whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever pistuos in me, Will not perish, but have everlasting life. At that moment, when I'm standing on the diving board, I am not trusting in my Father. I'm just acknowledging that he's there. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of our church is full of people that aren't trusting in Jesus for your salvation. You just acknowledge that he's there. You see, in that moment, man, I am standing on my own two feet, and my life is up to me. And the invitation of my father is, come on, buddy, jump. I've got you. And so what it means to believe, to believe in, to trust in, to bestuo, like Jesus is saying, is that I would take that step of faith off of the diving board into the loving arms of my father and trust that he is who he says he is, and I trust that he'll keep his promise, and I will put my life in his hands. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For God so loved the world. That means you. That means you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever, and I've got good news, if you're in the whosoever category, you could be saved. No matter if you're as religious as Nicodemus or if you're as rebellious as Abraham was at first, that you could be saved. That whosoever, whosoever, would believe, would trust, would pastuo in the only begotten Son of God, then you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. I wanna give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus like I did over 30 years ago at that camp and like Jess Peel did on Tuesday before he wrote this email. I wanna give you the opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And if you would say, for the very first time in my life, (coughs) I admit it, I, I... I need somebody to do for me what I cannot do for myself. I don't need just a new version of me. I need a new life. And you believe that somehow, even if you can't fully explain it, but right now you believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, somehow that counted for you, then right where you are, you confess him as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if that's you in this moment right now that you were confessing Christ as your Lord and Savior for the first time, would you lift your hand high in the air and would you just say, Father, here I am, save me. Put your hand high in the air and say, Father, here I am, save me. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we love you more than anything. God, we thank you that we can love you because you first loved us and that you did not send your son Jesus Christ as a mere example for us to follow, but you sent him to save sinners like us. God, we thank you that when, you, when he pushed up on his nail-pierced feet and he says, it is finished, that that debt is paid in full for anyone who would believe. And God, I thank you and I praise you that it, there is salvation in your house today. That God, just like you saved me 30-something years ago and you saved Jess this week, God, that you were saving men and women and students in this very moment. And God, we give you all the glory because you're the only one that deserves it. Lord, we love you because you loved us first, and we pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Church, would you please stand as we respond? We get to respond, and I hope you will, and we respond by bringing our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best, not because of any religious obligation, but out of a sense of gratitude because God gave his first and best through the life, death, and resurrection of his son on our behalf. And so we bring, and we pray, and we invite you to pray. God is a good dad, he is a good father. He loves you, and he wants you to pour out on him everything that's going on in your life. So we invite you to pray, and we sing. And we're gonna sing this song that is just basically the gospel. And I don't care if you're Baptist or not, when we get this one part, where it says it counted for me, it counted for me, I want both hands in the air if you believe that it counted for you. So let us pray, let us sing, let us bring, let's respond.